will hopefully be coming up on the screen just shortly as well. But we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 13, and we'll be looking at a couple of the parables, the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl, and um, that's verses 44 to 46. I'll be reading from the NIV, and I think it's a slightly older version than perhaps what's in the seats or might be on the screen, so there may be one or two words that are slightly different, but... Uh, <coughs> The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then, in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Amen. We pray that God adds his blessing to that word. So before we uh, come to to look at those verses in more detail, we're going to sing once more. So if you want to stand and join as we sing, if you've got your Bibles with you, just uh, keep that bit of passage open as we we look at it. And well, contained in the verses that we've read, just a few verses, but there are two parables. And a parable is um, essentially, it's a simple story and it's used by Jesus here to illustrate a spiritual lesson. All the stories that Jesus used in his parables that he taught would have included themes and incidents that were relevant and understandable to the audiences at the time. And we have some of these parables of Jesus recorded within the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John uh, because the message that they carry is something that is still relevant for us today. Due to some 2,000 years of time difference between Jesus actually teaching these parables and for us reading them today, we may not be quite so familiar with some of the illustrations that are used. Also with difficulties um, because of translation, the original words that are translated into English, uh, they may have lost some of their meaning or their emphasis. Therefore, the meaning of the parables and the words contained within may not be quite as clear to us as they were to the original audience that Jesus was telling them to. So it is good for us to consider the parables that, uh, that Jesus has taught so that we can understand better the context as to why Jesus was teaching them and then we can better establish for ourselves the meaning that they hold for us today. The Word of God has not always been so widely available or accessible as it is to us today. There are some places in the world where it's still a bit of a problem getting a copy of the Word of God. But also, we haven't had access to such things as commentaries and study guides, which help us to gain a better understanding of what it is we're reading. Quite often, when I read some of the parables, I can get the general idea of the message and what they're saying, but it's only when you go that little bit deeper that you find out what the true value of the message is and that you really understand it. So rather than doing the traditional sort of Baptist three-point sermon, um, I'll just be leading us through the passages that we've read and we'll hopefully pick up on some of the main themes um, and see if we can understand um, what it is that Jesus was teaching, why he was teaching these things. 
as we make our way through the parables, it'll become clear that they have some similarities, some things are the same, some things are, are slightly different. But it will also become clear that not all of the words are to be taken literally. Um, they're metaphors, they are used to enhance our understanding. So in verse 44, let us first begin with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is a phrase used not just here in verse 44, but in the parable that follows, which we shall look at shortly, and also in the parable that follows after these two. It is widely accepted by the biblical scholars, um, which I know is quite something for them to agree on things. Um, widely accepted that the kingdom of heaven, used in this context within these parables, refers to the gospel and more widely than that, the word of God and all that is in it. In commenting upon the kingdom of heaven, Albert Barnes, in his commentary, refers to the kingdom of heaven as the gospel, the new dispensation, the offer of eternal life. John Gill, in his commentary, refers to the kingdom of heaven as the gospel, which is a treasure consisting of rich truths, comparable to gold, silver, and precious stones of the most valuable blessings and of exceedingly great and precious promises. He goes on to state that it reveals the riches of God, of Christ, and of the world. The gospel is the word of God which points to the salvation of all who trust in God. The central message to the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that is, according to the word of God, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, again, according to the word of God. We can read this truth for ourselves. If you've got your Bibles open, just flick over to 1 Corinthians 15, and it is written there, um, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So by that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, we are to understand that it refers to the whole of the word of God, not just the new things that Jesus is teaching and not just that central message of the gospel. Second Timothy reminds us that all scripture is God-breathed. As you read through the Bible, no doubt, you'll begin to see threads which point towards God's salvation plan. And these things are revealed both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Matthew Henry comments that the gospel is the field in which this treasure is hid. It is hid in the word, both the Old Testament and the, the New Testament. So the kingdom of heaven then, when we see it in these parables, is referring to the word of God and all that is within it. So having considered the kingdom of heaven, let us also consider the treasure that is mentioned in this first parable. The image that we maybe hold today of treasure is um, perhaps has connotations of things like pirates and maps. And this is brought about by books such as Treasure Island and films like Pirates of the Caribbean. The word treasure in our language can be interpreted in more than one way. It can either, either refer to a quantity of valuable objects um, such as precious metals and gems, for example. Or it can mean to keep something carefully. 
John Trapp describes the treasure referred to in the, the parable here as a heap of precious things laid up for future uses. During biblical times, it was quite common for people to hide their precious items. There was a lack of safe places such as banks uh, to store valuable items. And at times, there were numerous wars and there was heavy oppression. And if you read through your Bible, you'll see that there's a rich history of war and oppression. Um, and for the people living in those times, keeping valuables safe was not really that easy. Because of these things, it uh, became common for people to hide money or jewels or whatever precious ornaments that they had. And they, I, they were either hidden within the, the building of the walls of their houses, uh, or they were hidden within the land owned by the family or an individual. So the treasure in this parable is not the type of treasure that's been hidden and is just a single item. It's not something that is a chest that can be buried um, and then sort of dug up and removed easily. Adam Clark makes the point that there's no sense in the purchase of a field for a pot of money which he might well have just carried away with him quite easily. So the treasure in the field then in the parable, if it's not a pot of buried valuables that can be removed, perhaps we ought to think of it as a mine, one which contains many deep and rich seams, one that must be worked at in order to extract some of the treasure. But then as we work at it, we find that not only can we extract some treasure, but the more it is worked, the more treasure it has to offer. So the treasure that we are to find is contained within the word of God, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The more of God's word that we read, the more abundant the treasures of God's grace are revealed to us. Thomas Fuller once said, Lord, this morning I read a chapter in the Bible and therein observed a memorable passage whereof I never took notice before. Why now and no sooner did I see it? In essence, what he is saying is that in reading the Bible, no matter how familiar the verse may be, just upon reading the word of God, the treasures contained within it are revealed. So just in this first sentence um, of verse 44, we can begin to see the importance of the word of God. And in the following sentence, Jesus tells us just exactly how we're to value that word of God. So in the remainder of the verse, uh, for verse 44, the man in the parable, we're told, went and sold all he had and bought that field. So as I've already said, this is uh, something that is not to be interpreted literally. We are not required to sell all that we have in order to obtain a copy of God's word or even to obtain the salvation that is offered through God's word. The idea of the man selling all he had to purchase the field is a metaphorical image. The only way that we can know and possess the great treasure of God's grace, which is forgiveness through Christ's death on the cross, is through the exchange of our sin. The man in the parable has found the treasure of salvation, which is the great truth contained within the word of God. And in finding it, he finds the salvation is just what his needy soul requires 
and that it will make him presently and eternally happy. And therefore, he acts. In his recognition of this truth, he sells all that he has. That is, he renounces his sins. He abandons his evil companions and he relinquishes all hopes of eternal salvation through his own righteousness. He gives up all he sees in himself, which does not please God. He gives up all of these things in order to purchase the field which offers salvation through God's grace and righteousness. What a powerful image. What a powerful image it is that Jesus is using in order to teach those who are gathered and also to teach us today. I find this a very challenging point in reflecting upon my own situation. What is it that I have left behind? What is it I have left behind that was bad, that was unwholesome, in order that I may know this salvation? Moreover, what am I still holding on to? Can I put myself in the shoes of the man in the parable who has truly given up everything? The emphasis in this first parable, at least to me anyway, appears to be the weight and the value of all that is contained in God's word. It's vast. It's not something we merely lift up and take with us. It is so vast that we must keep revisiting God's words to draw upon its riches. Before I finish on this point, just as a side note, I'm going to briefly consider that the man is hiding the treasure again. Because this would seem to bring into question his integrity. Um, so the hiding of the treasure is just a small detail in the greater scope of the context. But it is a detail which helps us to see all the more the earnestness and the care the man takes in order to possess the abundant riches and the truth he has found. Jesus here is not intending to vindicate the integrity of the man. So notice also that it is not just that he gives up everything that he has in order to obtain the treasure, but also he does not appear to dilly-dally. He gets on with the business that's required to leave all of his old self behind so that he could cling firmly to all that is true in God. So the main points to draw from this first parable then are that a man finds the word of God. He recognizes the depth of the treasure contained within it. And with that understanding, he gives up all of himself. He gives up all of his sin that he might know and own the depths of the treasure that is the salvation by the grace of God. So as we go into the second parable, it is similar to the first. Again, it speaks of the kingdom of heaven. And as we already explored, this is a reference to the gospel, to the word of God, to all that is in it, the Old Testament and the New. It also, at the end of the parable, speaks of the exchange of sin for the riches of salvation found in God's word. But the big difference in this parable is that the treasure here is a pearl. And we're told that the person is actively looking for this pearl. In the first parable, there was not even a hint that the man was looking for the treasure. 
he just seemed to come across it. But in doing so, in coming across it, he realized its worth. So the man in this parable is looking for, for goodly or for fine pearls, depending on which translation you have there. And he finds a pearl of great price. But why is the image of the pearl being used? Today, it is quite well known that something like saffron, gram for gram, is supposed to be considered more valuable than gold. When we think of valuable things, we do not readily associate pearls as being something of great value. Instead, we're more inclined to think of things like gold and diamonds and other things. Pearls you kind of tend to associate with kind of the old necklace that your great-grandma used to have or something like that. Um, <coughs> so let us try and put into, uh, into context then why it is that the pearl is being used in this image um, given by Jesus so that we may hopefully understand this parable all the better for ourselves. But in order to do this, we're going to consider um, a couple of things. We're going to firstly consider the value of the pearl. We're going to consider, firstly, that um, it is also that it's a fine pearl. Um, and we shall also consider that it is a pearl that is durable. So firstly then, let us consider the value of a pearl. I had to do a little bit of research on this one, but um, apparently it does not take a very large pearl to be worth a lot of money. Now, if you've ever seen pearls, they're, they're quite small little things. And, um, yeah, apparently they don't need to be very big to be worth lots of money. It is reported that Cleopatra had a pearl w which was worth something like $375,000 in today's money. So, you know, a little kind of bitty round thing and worth an absolute fortune. <coughs> the biographer of Julius Caesar details that the love of pearl mussels was one of the motives for the first Roman invasion of Britain in AD 55. Any history buffs out there? That was a new one on me. But the freshwater pearl mussel is a species that can be found in Scotland. And as its name suggests, it's a mussel and it's capable of producing a pearl. Because of their ability to produce pearls, they're often poached because the, the pearl, as we have established, is quite valuable. But they're endangered. And because they're endangered, that only makes their pearls more valuable still because there are less of them. So throughout the ages, it seems that pearls have commanded a status and a value to such an extent that people in positions of power and of great personal wealth have desired them. So the word of God is to be valued as if it were a pearl, as if it were something precious and desirable to be prized and cherished, something that is of intrinsic value. So let us now, with an understanding of the value of the pearl, let us consider the type of pearl. So notice Jesus is telling us that the man is searching for a goodly pearl, or it might be written a fine pearl. Yet he finds the one pearl of great price, which is the only pearl worth giving up everything for. The fact that the man is searching suggests that there are other pearls that are also good and desirable to have. Yet these pearls do not compare at all 
to the pearl of great price. So what do these goodly pearls look like? What do they represent? What would be considered a goodly pearl today? Let us think of things that we today in our society seek as something that is good, something that is of intrinsic value. Things that we see as good, things that make us happy or feel satisfied, things that we can have and things that we can do. So do we seek to have a healthy lifestyle, for instance? Do we play sports, eat healthily and exercise? Do we work hard at our jobs, accepting change, putting in that little bit of extra effort and just pursue opportunities for training and, and promotion? Do we seek to help others with our time and our resources? If all these things are good, they can bring us satisfaction, there's no reason that we shouldn't pursue such things. Yet, how do they compel to the pearl that is of great price, the message of salvation? God's word teaches us that salvation comes through Christ alone. It cannot be achieved by our own works. You often hear stories of people who are searching for something in life. They're trying to find fulfillment. They try various things. They do many things. And they're never, never truly satisfied. God's word teaches us in Psalm 30, 23 that God is abundantly sufficient and declares, I shall not want. The things that we do, the things that we fill our lives with, they can make us feel happy or fulfilled, but it is only a temporary feeling. All of these things are incomparable to the word of God and the offer of salvation and eternal abundance with God. The things we do, the things we possess, and the things we aim for may well be goodly pearls that would be desirable and are satisfying, but they cannot compare to the word of God and the riches of the treasure that are contained within it. So let us consider then the durability of the pearl. Things that are of value are not always quite what they seem. We know in today's world that items, whether cheap or expensive, are not immune from being reproduced. Whether it's an iPhone or a charger for an iPhone, although other brands of phone are available, um, one's an expensive item and one is less so. Yet both of these items can be found to be reproduced. Um, they're copied and sometimes they're offered at a knockdown price or as a deal that seems too good to be true. Pearls were and still are items that can be artificially created. Some of them are more convincing creations than others. There are those that definitely look artificial. I think we kind of see the little plastic ones occasionally, which are supposed to be representative of pearls, but others are a bit more convincing. And unless you know exactly what you're looking for, you might not be able to tell which is the genuine article and which <coughs> is not. So my wife and I were in Venice recently and whilst we were there, we visited one of the islands and saw Venetian glass being made. And one of the ladies in the shop told us uh, of the counterfeits that were being made of the Venetian glass. They were being produced and sold as Venetian glass, yet they weren't made anywhere near Venice. 
but they were sold at a price which makes them seem a little bit more reasonable if you're wanting to make a purchase. So the genuine glass is handcrafted, and you saw this in action, um, it is hardened, it is finished in a particular way, and these things give the glass a durability and a fine finish. The counterfeits are produced to look the same. The problem is their durability is not the same. Now the woman in the shop demonstrated actually that um, the, the durability of the, the glass, she pulled <coughs> off a bag of, I think it was necklaces or something, and just threw them down on the counter in front of us. And she told us that the genuine glass was able to be roughly handled. Um, and if it was dropped, um, then the glass wouldn't break or be tarnished. The same thing is not true of the counterfeit glass. It's more likely to crack or to chip under the same circumstances, leaving the buyer, no doubt, somewhat disappointed. So a lot of the things that we see around us that we put value in are not able to stand up to the rigors of testing and of use. For instance, our technology gets old, out of date, begins to slow down and have problems, and the batteries, they don't seem to hold the same charge anymore. The same thing can be applied to our houses, our cars, and pretty much anything that we own. They will inevitably require work. They will wear, they will fade, they will show signs of use. The word of God, which is the pearl of great price, is not like these things. It is not something that will deteriorate with use or require to be replaced. The physical book that you have in the pews in front of you or maybe in your laps, the pages and the ink may deteriorate, but the word of God does not. The word of God can stand up to rigorous testing because its message is true and pure and exquisite. It is the genuine article. The word of God has stood up the test of God sending his son to die in our place and to raise again that we might be forgiven and receive salvation by God's grace. It stood up to that test. The Old Testament points to that happening and it's happened. God's word has stood up to that test. In the book of Acts, Peter and the apostles are being questioned by the Sanhedrin because they're preaching the gospel the message of salvation through Christ's death and resurrection. And a man named Gamaliel speaks up and says that if this message that they speak and its purpose are of human origin, then it will fail. Well, here we are 2,000 years later and we're still telling people this same gospel message. And the Old Testament, which points towards God's salvation plan, is still being taught these things are both still relevant and still changing people's lives. And Peter, in 1 Peter, writes that the word of the Lord stands forever. The word of God indeed is a pearl of great price. It has already stood up to rigorous testing and it is able to continue standing up to rigorous testing. The word of God is pure and true and we should value it as the man valued the pearl in the parable, giving up all that he had to have the pearl of great price. So these two parables then teach us that we should treasure the word of God. They point to the message of salvation revealed through the riches of the word 
of God's word in Christ's death and resurrection. Salvation cannot be achieved by any other means. Nothing that we can do will earn our salvation, no matter how valuable a deed we think it may be. We are to exchange our sin, to take up the promises of the word of God, that we might earnestly seek out the riches within it that will be revealed the deeper we look into it. Now the parable that follows on to, from this one goes on to suggest that the word of God is for the whole world, as it uses this image of a net which catches all in its path. So this treasure that we have, the treasure that we know as Christians, is one which is very valuable, yet it's one that we must share. Although not everyone will recognize the value of the word of God, it is our commission to take it to all the nations. And so I want to close just now by encouraging you all to immerse yourselves in the word of God, to see anew the value that it holds, to leave behind the things that we still hold on to, or the things that we keep going back to that are sinful, and also to share in the depths and the richness of the treasure that is contained within it. Amen.